If you haven't signed up for our YouTube channel, you can just type in Major Demo Media. We are slowly but surely hosting and providing a bunch of content on there. We also have our Discord still. Hit the notification button to get updates on new episodes of Yin Cooks the Internet, as well as Recipe Club content, as well as a whole host of other new ideas. Also, with our partners, you can get 20% off Athletic Brewing if you type in the code ATHLETICGIFT20. That's one word, 10% off all any day cookware. Use the code DAVE, D-A-V-E, 10% off all Momofuku products. If you type in the code DOMO, D-O-M-O-10, or you can visit us and use that at shop.momofuku.com where you can go to your local great supermarket, your Whole Foods, your Kroger's, your Targets, etc., and you can just buy it there. We have a whole host of pantry items, salt, spices, and air-dry noodles, two new flavors, the sweet and spicy and the spicy chili. And of course, $40 off, comment to your coffee. That is unbelievable deal. And you just type in promo code Chang at cometeer.com slash Chang. Also, this is an important note because we have a special guest today where Stephen Ronella, founder of Meat Eater, an outdoor lifestyle company, content galore, really great cooking tips, not just for wild game, but just a little bit of everything. Really interesting, insightful, tons of tons of wonderful content on Meat Eater. Exclusively for our listeners, Meat Eater is offering 10% off your next purchase at any of their brands, including First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and Meat Eater product in the Meat Eater store. Use code Meat Eater at checkout. Offer is valid through October 17th. Head over to MeatEater.com to shop. That is very generous of them. We did a home-and-home podcast with Steve Ronella, and we'll get into that right away. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. We have a guest today, and he is a repeat guest. He was on our podcast maybe a few months, two, three months before March of 2020, when the world sort of shut down. And we were trying to get together many times since then, but because of the past three years, just wasn't able to do that. We were not able to do that. And his name is Stephen Ranella an author, conservationist, hunter, and host of Meat Eater TV show. Many, many seasons you can find on Netflix. And I believe their new seasons are going to be on fast streaming channels on your TV, your smart TVs, just like we have on the LG, the Major Doma, Major Doma Media TV channel. And he's got a podcast called Meat Eater. And he's got a website called The Meat Eater or Meat Eater. If you just uh, find that on a search engine, you will get directed to a place that has a ton of resources about hunting, fishing, also cooking. He's a really good cook. And if you haven't seen his shows, they make very entertaining programs. So excited to have him back on and where we are going to talk about sort of how to become a hunter and also a little bit about how people might be able to be more connected to their food and why there are groups of people that are very anti-hunting. We don't really answer any of those things 
it's a conversation. That's where we get to. But it's something that I, I care a lot about. And I wanted to talk to sort of the, the guy, right? He's really become the, the spokesperson for conservationists and also hunting in an ethical way and eating the things that you hunt. So I really appreciate everything he does. But before that, we're going to get into a quick three things I think about. We've been doing a lot about three things in restaurants. This time, I'm going to talk about three things I think about a steakhouse. So the number one thing I look for in a steakhouse is, are they dry aging their beef? And not all places are going to dry age their beef from start to finish. Oftentimes, their meat purveyor is going to be selling them dry aged beef to their specifications. And they'll finish it in their own, uh, the restaurant's dry aging room. That's important to me because I want people to see something, right? Where it's not completely sanitized and you're not just getting a T-bone just on your plate, right? I'm certainly in the minority, but I, sounds crazy. I think it's more delicious and more important that, that you know that there was an animal and suffering and a lot of care and technique went into making steak that you're ordering. And I'm just talking about American steakhouses right now. If you've seen the Ugly Delicious steak episode, that was sort of that, 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 that principle that we tried to explore was the idea of sacrifice, really, of how you celebrate over meat. And quite frankly, America's always been a steakhouse town, will always be a steakhouse country and when we go to eat steaks, for the most part, not everybody, because there's certainly a group of people that eat steaks just like it's a snack. But for many people, eating, eating steak is a celebratory occasion. And I think that when you lose the connection of where it came from and what it is that you're eating, it's not as delicious. It just becomes a protein unit. And when you have a well-marbled, well-aged, dry-aged steak, and you know that the process was there, I and mean, you can see the dry aging room. I, I think it's a wonderful thing, and I understand why people would want to completely sanitize it and know that there was, you know, this this piece of beef that you're eating almost in their minds came from a tree, right? So that's the one thing I'm looking for is literally some kind of window into their dry aging room. So that's important because I do think again it's important to know how and when it happened, right? We've really removed that process completely. And I, I hope that we're able to reintroduce it, right? A lot of the old, well, they were called beef steakhouses, right? Those are the first steakhouses in America. You literally walk through, if you, if you see the gangs of New York, that's a pretty accurate depiction of what a steakhouse used to look like. You would walk through the carcasses of the meat. Again, that's never going to happen today. But like, I hate to say it, but like death is sort of an important thing to think about when you're eating something and, and all that went into it. So number one, I, I like to look at that. Number two, I'm trying to figure out the, the decor, right? If it's, if it's got banquettes, I like that. If it's dark, I like that. I'm also looking at the cutlery. So I think those are the three things right there. I'm not even looking at the menu yet. So I guess I'm just combining something. So I'm looking at the decor. 
I love, I don't like banquettes traditionally, but I love banquettes in a steakhouse, right? There's something about that intimacy that, that, that if you have a four top and you're around, you know, sitting around the table, I, I love that feeling. And I think steakhouses have to have good lighting. And, and what I mean by that is, is there's almost no lighting whatsoever. That to me is important. That's just for me. When I go to Musso and Frank's, which is technically like a steakhouse, that's what I, I love. The third thing, I guess there's more than three things, but I'll just say it's a third thing. All on the menu is, are they serving like, like one cut? This, like They're only serving like one cut, right? They're not serving a sirloin five different ways, right? There's only so many cuts in an American steakhouse. But I don't like it when I see, let's just say, a sirloin done like with chimichurri, chimichurri sauce. Then it's served with like, I don't know, as a composed dish. I, I don't think there should any, be any composed dishes. It should be a la carte. But, you know, it's just the same thing. If I see any menu where like Branzino's done five different ways, I don't like that at all. That's just, again, my thing. And if I see like a, a ribeye done five different ways, I don't like that. I, I want like simplicity, right? And, and you can cook it the way you want and then you get your side. So if I'm going to a classic American steakhouse, that's what I want. Even better if they uh, put the trolley out of the cuts of beef. That's something you see in a lot of Japanese restaurants where they'll weigh the beef, the Wagyu right in front of you and that's exactly the cut. They cut your slice Right in front of you, they weigh it, and that's what's going to be cooked. And I think the sides too, right? I, if I see a steakhouse that has a lot of truffle stuff, I'm never really going back there unless it's real truffles in truffle season. But again, like I don't think you need it, even though it might be good on mashed potatoes. But if it's anything truffle fries, I'm out. If it's truffle mashed potatoes, I'm out. If it's lobster mac and cheese, I'm out, right? I'm a classic steak. Steak, you got to have two kinds of spinach. The only duplicate you can have on a, a, a on the steakhouse menu is sauteed spinach and cream of spinach. You have to have multiples of potatoes, right? You need to have mashed potatoes. You need to have two kinds of french fries, at least one, right? Steak or cottage or shoestring, which I hate, but not shoestring, but thinner french fries. Hash browns, potatoes, lyonnaise. There's some steakhouses where there's like eight to nine different potato types. The more kinds of potatoes, the better. And I guess I'll just simplify that. The third thing I'm really looking for is how many fucking potato offerings am I going to be able to order? And if I have to order like all of them, that's a good, that's a good menu, right? When I'm like, man, I think I got to get the home fries. I think I got to get the hash brown. I think I got to get the potato roasty. And I definitely got to get the mashed potatoes. That's a good menu. That's a great, that's a really good steakhouse menu. A really good steakhouse menu is like, man, I got to get the sauteed spinach and I got to get the cream spinach. That's a good menu. That's a really good menu. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to a top steakhouse where they're serving prime, dry age prime, it's going to be good. I mean, a lot of the cooking technology is the same. I do prefer a pan roasted steak than a char broiled. 
But I, you know, that's just me. But a charbroiled steak, almost that, that you can almost taste the like carcinogen almost. It's, it's really nostalgia. It is really a Proustian moment for me. Because when I grew up, I thought a steakhouse was the pinnacle of dining. That's where I originally wanted to work when I first got in the cooking industry. Because that's what I thought, that's what fine dining was. So I love steakhouses. I do think that we eat too much steak at steakhouses. And it should be more reserved for celebrations. So just to go over, I definitely want potato options. As many options for potatoes as possible. Two, it's the decor. I want manquettes. And I want um, the ability to like, I mean, the cutlery, right? You need a good steakhouse knife. So it's all the the, the, the ambiance of things and the lighting. It's got to be super dark, but somehow you can see everything. It's this weird paradox. I, I don't want to go to a steakhouse where they're not, there's no dry aging beef, right? I, I, I will say if prediction, the future of steakhouses are going to have it much more interactive. Right, And I think they're going to be taking a cue from what you see in Asia. You're going to go to a steakhouse. You're going to be able to cut the beef that you want. And they're going to slice it right in front of you. And they're going to weigh it. And then you're, they're going to cook it for you later. Or you'll be able to walk up to a counter and say, like, I want that, this cut or I want that cut. And that interactive experience, I think, is going to be much more the norm. And quite frankly, I don't know if you see that too much in America, but you do see it quite a bit in Asia. And I think that will definitely be the case. All right, we'll take a break. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, we're going to get into our interview with Stephen Ranella. We are doing a double podcast. So we recorded one here and you can also listen to the second part of the podcast with me and Steven on his podcast network where you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts, Spotify and Apple, etc. When you just find Meat Eater with Steven Ranella. So we'll get into that right now. I'm joined with uh, the great Steven Ranella. He was on the podcast in 20, 2019. Was it that long ago? Yeah. yeah. And we were just talking about trying to rebook a, a live show that we were doing March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And the world just stopped working. And maybe maybe we'll get to, to do that one day down the road. Yeah, we're finally rebooking. I've done a couple live things, but we're doing a live tour this December, but headed off in the other direction. It was funny you me- you mentioned that because I had kind of forgot all the details of, uh, you know, we had, I don't know, 16 theater shows that we canceled because of the pandemic. And then- But you re- got some re- now. Re- well, now, yeah, we're starting to fresh this December. Where's that start? 
I think the first dates is the first date might be Kansas City. So we'll bounce around a couple dates in Michigan, a couple dates in Pennsylvania, Kansas City. And what happens? To go look. What happens in a live show? We've never done a live show. So so what's going to happen? Well, so as you know, I host a podcast and we have a lot of recurring regular guests that come on the podcast. Guys I work with. So when we do live shows, we do them different ways in different times, but generally when we do live shows when we do this tour, it's people who are known to listeners as regulars on the show, but then also regional guests come on and it's in a theater. There's a lot of interactive stuff with the audience. Um, you know, it's just a lot of humor, um, covering jokes, news, whatever, uh, in a kind of round table atmosphere on the stage. The last time we did a live show, we had some, uh, we had a visiting musician, um, do some stuff. We have a, on our, on the meat eater podcast, we have a weekly trivia show, which is very popular. So we, we put a trivia component into the live shows where people from the audience come up to compete in different stuff. And someone from the audience will come up to compete in trivia on behalf of the audience. You have a huge audience. You have a massively loyal audience too. Well, for those that don't know. Yeah, it's good. No, it's good. And, and you know, we're not doing like, uh, we're not doing like NFL stadiums. I mean, we're doing theater shows, but yeah. <laughs> so. You know, that brings me up, bring, brings up a point. I, I think, I wonder what the overlap is between the people that listen to this show and the stuff on Spotify in general, like even the Bill Simmons group and the ringer versus the very large audience that follows you where you give them a lot of information and entertainment. And I was thinking, I was like, why is that? seem on paper almost maybe two different buckets sometimes right because i love everything you do your meat eater show on netflix are you doing your 11th season now yeah we we well we're filming 12 right now but 11 and 12 i think 10 was the last one we did on netflix we're starting fast channel distribution but right now you can watch all of our episodes at themeateater.com and we put stuff up on YouTube still, and we're getting into and we're getting into building like fast channel distribution. I remember when Bourdain was alive, and we were just filming the first season of Mind of Chef, and can't remember who. Maybe it was Tony. He's like, "Hey, man, I met this guy, and he's amazing. And he's just like he's a hunter, but he's a conservationist. And when it was being told to me, I was like, "Who? Who is this person? Like, it, I never even knew that world existed outside of maybe." The, you know, the, the outdoor channel, the OLN or whatever that is on yep. cable. And sure enough, you've just redefined the whole genre, really, quite frankly. No, I've been at it, you know, I've been a at it a long time. time, man. Like I started doing magazine work. I finished graduate school in 2000. I studied writing there and started writing about hunting and fishing and other things back then. Now, I was talking about this not long ago. It seems like You know, I, I had grown up hunting and, and, and hunting and fishing and trapping as well, fur trapping. And obviously humans had, you know, it's arguably our, you know, one of our oldest, you know, sex and hunting, right? Sort of our oldest habits. So it was surprising that there was new things to be done there, you know, but I, I just was, I don't know, I talked about a relationship I had with hunting and and it was, it just hadn't been 
described quite the the way I experienced it yet. So I I just was sort of taking the thing that I had taken for granted and did and loved and and just have spent a career trying to express it. And in following that, it's taken me in a lot of directions from anthropology and, and, and human history, culinary elements, right? American history elements. So it winds up being this really all-encompassing subject matter that when I was a kid, I just thought it was, I just thought of it as like what you do to have a good time is go outside. And I never, and it, I was sort of slow to realize the the breadth of the subject matter, right? I think you helped show that it wasn't one-dimensional, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm sure there's been a lot of voices along the way, but maybe they've written books and they just didn't have the the reach or the platform. And, you know, I just know from your, 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 your TV series alone, I think that's reached an audience that may not have been aware of any of that stuff before. Yeah. And that's sort of what I wanted to explain when I said two different buckets. Like when I, I don't tell that many people that, Hey, I've gone hunting. I enjoy hunting. I'm not really, you know, it's not something I would like to do more of. I think it's been a little different for me since I left New York, something that happened a lot more. And I just don't, have the connections that I do on the West Coast. I do know that it exists. I do know that it's <laughs> happening all the time. But the reason I say that, honestly, is I know that some of the people in my universe, my friends, my peers, they just don't like, they frown on it. Oh, yeah. Uneasy with it. Uneasy they, they've been with trained. It. They've been trained to be uneasy with it. And they think immediately that, again, I don't know what their thought process is, but there's certainly a bias that isn't seen, I don't ever even get into a conversation about it because mm. I don't want to because it seems like, why are you doing that? Yeah. It's like, why would you do that? There's so many things you could be doing. Why would you do that? And it's weird that you have like, you like, you're saying you like this. I don't show them any photos of birds that I've shot. Yeah. You know, I don't because I just, I, I've trained myself. That's not something that I can talk about to them. Yeah, there's a, I could name a big list of, uh, not a big list. In my mind, I have a list of what I like to think of as closeted hunters. I've met a lot of, like, uh, in the celebrity <laughs> space, I meet closeted hunters, you know, who are, like, dying to talk about it. There's a, culturally, especially on, you know, it, it's very coastal. It's funny, because me and my colleague, we were just in the car laughing about, right-wing grievances and left-wing outrage but uh you know the, these this sort of like <laughs> quarreling couple right those two things but we're, i think that it's this it's a very coastal perspective about the, the the evils of hunting is coastal i find um it comes from a handful of things like the, the anti-hunting indoctrination in people through media begins early you know the, the 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 kind of classic evil among hunters is sort of the, the treatment of hunters on you know such things as like Disney cartoons and Bambi, right? Even now, when you like, well, I look at the stuff my kids watch. Um, it's common to have a villain be a southern hunter, be like a common anti wildlife villain. People I mean, are Elmer Fudd was always a- you know people are <laughs> uneasy with gun. Yeah, he wasn't a southerner, but yeah. People are uneasy with guns for sure. And there's a, there's a direct, you know, there's a very direct relationship between hunting and guns. So I see it also, it takes a minute to think about it. It takes a minute. 
you have to be open intellectually to something that might at first seem contradictory. If you'll notice in the, in the media, in mainstream media, if mainstream media goes near hunting, they're often going to go near hunting for deleterious exotics, meaning you'll see a, a lot of media attention around catching Burmese pythons in the Everglades. Cause it's like, well, that's good because those things are bad. Or hogs, like invasive pigs. You build it up to be that the animal is an enemy. It should be gone. It shouldn't be here. So it's okay for us to go hunt that. Lionfish in the Caribbean. Well, that's good because those are bad. They have a hard time understanding this this norm of people who hunt things but also celebrate those things and want those things around. They can see it like, oh, I think it's good to hunt things that are bad and you don't want around, but I don't understand how could you hunt something that you do want to be around, that you love and celebrate. I don't know where that disconnect happened because if you go back to the earliest representational art in Europe, it's hunters making beautiful renditions of the animals that they hunt for. So there's this long history of us celebrating Literally, like the first paintings of all time. Yeah, the earliest (laughs) representational art is people making art of the things they hunt. So, but it's hard for people to understand that it's you'd have to get into a a lot of history. There's a lot of points that are counterintuitive. Meaning, if you get into wildlife history in America, market hunters, commercial hunters in the late 1800s, early 1900s, did enormous amounts of damage to American wildlife. That's easy to understand, right? We're all familiar with pictures of buffalo hide hunters, like you know, stripping the land of of buffalo, but the hard part is it was this like different kind of hunter that came right on the heels of those damaging hunters that, that demanded that American wildlife be recovered. Right. And that's like, what? Right. There's a catch. And so that's hard for people to get a hold of. There's two points I want to make. One is this disconnect with hunting in America. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there's a disconnect with hunting and food, particularly hunting and restaurants. I think we touched that the last time you were on how you can't serve wild game on a menu unless it's like a private dinner or something like that. Yeah. But if you go really the rest of the world, I would say maybe with the exception of Asia, although I've hunted for duck in Japan where you throw nuts oh, nets in the air. That was ridiculous. <laughs> we didn't catch anything. If you go to the UK, right? Yeah. Our cousins across the pond, nobody, it's almost seen as arist- aristocratic less than sure. anything else, but I know a lot of people there and they go hunting and it's not seen as a bad thing. They're like, yeah, that's what you do. Well, they, they buy harvested wild game in markets. You could buy, you could go, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen, like to walk into Scotland and see ducks with shotgun pellet holes in them in a market, you know? And on menus, it yeah. says, be careful for shotgun yep. pellets. Completely different <laughs> management structure. Like, the, yeah, they, they have... They have a system much older than ours, much more exclusive, much less democratic, but they have a wildlife management system that when people are trying to describe wildlife management in the U.S., which we'll call like, you know, we call the North America, it sounds like the boringest thing in the world, the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is a democratic allocation, completely different systems. I would argue that our system is much more successful because our system invites a lot of uh, invites public democratic, you know, blue collar use into a resource. And Europe has 
And when I say year, you know, you're obviously we're talking about a bunch of countries, all different languages, different cultural histories, but let's just, let, let's take England, for example, or Great Britain, for example. They have a wildlife management system where wildlife is the property largely of the elites. Wildlife is the property of the person that owns land. In the U.S., we came up with a very different system where we, we came in from an early period and said, wildlife belongs to the people. It belongs to the people regardless of whose land it's on. So it might seem like a, a, a minor detail, but this led to like extraordinarily different ways of looking at wildlife. So in America, we'll talk about the old system, the European model, which is where if you're a landowner, the gentry, you control access to wildlife and it's yours fit to do what you want. In, in the U.S., like take, take something like, let's just take a, a, a elk that's in Yellowstone National Park. Okay, Everybody knows Yellowstone. If an elk is in Yellowstone National Park and he jump, he crosses a border, so he's in he's in the Montana portion of Yellowstone National Park, and he jumps a border and enters the national forest, and he jumps another border and enters state land, and he jumps another border and goes on to a billionaire's ranch, and jumps another border and goes on to a trailer park, which he could do quite easily in one day. All of these things, he's never changed ownership all day. He's been the people. He's been the, he's belonged to the people of the state of Montana th- throughout his day as he jumped from these different things. That's not the case in other parts of the world. So that's why we have this kind of extraordinary system where, like, someone like me who can grow up, you know, just whatever middle class dude in Michigan who would be able to go out with their family and like hunt and fish for their food, and, and that was not a reality. That was not a reality for working class people. In in, in the motherland, so in England, there, yeah. it, there are positives to the setup we have. It's a phenomenal setup, dude. It's like it's 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 you know we we it's overobserved that it's the, it's it's the world's best you know very patriotic sounding. It's the world's best system, um, it, and it and it and it speaks for itself because it works really well for wildlife. It's not it's not it's not absolutely perfect, but it's pretty good. Where it falls apart, not falls apart. Where people point that it could do a better job is it could do a better job on non-game. Some people point out that it's it's the system isn't as good for non-game species as it is for game species, but that's like a real technical detail. Because I was thinking maybe the only way to make it so it's not seem such a taboo subject, you're not going to have so many closeted celebrities, as you say, is if it's on people's plate and people understand. And I do think in the UK, even the culinary programming is a little bit more at the vanguard of understanding that a life was taken for something. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. The BBC has amazing food programming. Like they're taking kids to a slaughtering facility and stuff that would never make it to America. And I, I just think the disconnect here is greater than anywhere else. Yeah. And you know, I, the reason I want to do it, I wish, you know, it's not, not possible now, but like knowing that something was alive. And if you take the life of something, I think it's an experience that everyone should understand, right? Don't you? Like, if you're going to eat meat on a regular, it's like, I think it makes you a better cook, especially if you're a professional cook, right? Even if you raise your own vegetable, oh, right? yeah, you I care think. so much more. Yeah, you become fastidious. But that yeah. wasn't a, a sentient being. A beat's no. not a sentient being. And I do think when you care about something, especially as a professional cook, you, you do, uh, uh, you just, food just tastes better because you care about it. So I just find it to be 
funny that it's just being erased, right? To the point where if I say I want to go hunting, and I'm like, why'd you go hunting? I was like, oh, I wanted to, I want to be part of this process. I want to know. And besides, it's extremely enjoyable. I want that adrenaline rush too. But at the same time, it connects me to what I put on my plate. Not always, but it's a good reminder of sacrifice to some degree. Sure, yeah. I can't get any, I mean, I would say anybody, but you know better than anybody else. It's a, it's a, it seems to be a losing battle. You know, you wind up being a, a victim of your own surroundings when it comes to understanding people's perspectives. A funny anecdote about this. We recently, I mentioned we do a trivia show. We recently did a kids trivia episode where we had this little kids come in and play like an outdoor trivia show. And one of the questions was, what percent of American kids went fishing during the pandemic? And my kid, he said, 95. <laughs> so, meaning in his social circle, fish, like everyone fishes. So he's like, you know, in the country, I'm assuming 95% of kids fish during the pandemic. You know, wildly off. <laughs> but from his viewpoint, that's what was going on. And so I like to, to have, to, to, to get that perspective about people being uneasy with animal death or, or not associating me on a plate with, with death. I have to kind of, it's a little bit for me, I almost have to a little bit stretch to stretch to picture that sentiment because it's it just, it, it's always been a reality for me. I, I think I, I was aware of it in raising kids. I didn't want to ever surprise them with death. So I had it be that, that ever since they were little, 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 I never shielded them from any reality about animal death. I, I take that back. One time I didn't let them watch us. A friend of mine raised some lambs and I didn't let my kids watch us slaughter the lambs. And even later I thought that I should have probably had them watch instead of showing it to them. But I've just immersed them in all of the aspects of raising food in a garden hunting for food, visiting friends, ranches and farms where food is made. And, and, it, and I think that I'm replicating in them an upbringing that I had as well, where I was never surprised by this information. I recognize there are people that it, that it comes as quite a shock. Total, total surprise. <laughs> you know, it comes as quite a shock. And I've seen it because I've taken people out hunting who, when they, you know, as an adult, if they kill something for the first time, um, they'll shed tears. And it's, it's, um, it's not a regret. It's not shedding tears out of regret. It's almost, it's, it's cathartic or, or it's like this sort of this realization washes over, but not in a negative way. It's the realization washes over in a positive way. And it's quite emotional for people. So I'm depriving my kids that discovery someday because I'm just baking it into their existence. And, and probably, you know, someday down the road, if they become people who talk about this sort of thing for a living or write about it for a living, they might down the road be as baffled as I might be about how it could be that someone would just discover that this is going on. But I want to add a thing about wildlife conservation. And, and earlier I was mentioning that, that there's a safety in, in media treatments. There's, there's a perceived safety around, you know, hunting for like things that shouldn't be there, like, or creating an evil, like wild hogs are an evil. The Burmese Python is an evil when you do eradicate it. Um, all the better if someone can get a meal off it, right? That a way you begin to view wildlife is you, you, this is going to sound a little bit unsympathetic, 
to individual animals, but you view wildlife as a, let's say you view it as an apple tree, the whole of wildlife, habitat, the animals, it's an apple tree. And the, the, the individual deer you imagine as being apples that fall from the tree. Um, and it's like, if you touch that tree, you know, I'm going to kick your ass, go ahead and have an apple. Right. And, and so that, 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 that hunter's perspective on, on habitat winds up being that it's like, we need to take care of the tree. So it continues to yield the apple. But a lot of people look at the apple and they would say, don't do, I'm not even really aware of this whole tree thing you're talking about, but don't touch, don't touch that apple. That's, that's mean. Right. You know, never thought about it that way before. Well, <laughs> it's people do. And it's usually people who don't understand the tree. Right. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. I had this conversation with my wife where this summer, I mean this winter, we're going to take our kids. We have a four and two-year-old and they're going to see snow for the first time. They've never seen snow, which is crazy to me. That was fun. And we're going to go. We're going we're gonna to go to Wyoming. We're going to go skiing and, I don't know, see what happens. And I was like, <laughs> there's all these other things that they're doing for the first time, especially my four-year-old. Soccer, baseball, et cetera. And I was like, if I was a more avid hunter, I was more expert at that, I'd be like, you know what? Like, we probably haven't like, learned this stuff too, but I don't have that immediacy to do that. Yeah. I'm a... Uh, I'm a pretty avid saltwater fly fisherman. So like I can teach him certain things via that way, but there's something different about doing it on land or that I, I, I wouldn't be able to teach him. And I was like, I bet you, I was just thinking if I did, I'd say, Hey, amongst our friends, my friends, my wife's friends, Hey, we're going to take Hugo hunting. They would be like, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with you? They may not have said that, but they would certainly think that. And I think that disconnect, I just don't know how you're going to bridge that. Man, uh, I feel like I've been in, in some way bridging it by not through manipulation, but I've in some way bridged it in my career, um, successfully here and there by simply just offering a broader explanation. I, I have this friend that years ago, he was a, he was a sociologist. I think it was, 
if I'm remembering right, Greg, I'm sorry if I'm screwing this up, but I, I believe he did his PhD at, uh, at Stanford and he was working on this project where you, you find people who identify as ambivalent or antagonistic toward hunting. And then you present them with pieces of information. Okay. And you're trying to present them with pieces of information that are like objective realities. Okay. So you're not, you're not giving them like emotional tidbits. You're giving them just facts about wildlife management or, or other things. And, and you explain a fact to someone, an objective reality to someone. And then you say, basically, does that, you know, turn your, your approval dial? Does, does that make you more antagonistic or less antagonistic, right? And the things that they would find that were impactful for people was just simple explanations of, simple explanations of the reality of wildlife management. Meaning if you say to someone, so when you buy your hunting and fishing licenses, it's that money. That money is what funds your state fishing game agency. So when you see a poacher and call a game warden, or there's an animal that has a sickness and they come out to dispatch the animal and find out what happened to it, all that is because people buy hunting and fishing licenses. Oh, that makes me feel a little better. Okay. Did you know that these fish and game agencies have higher biologists and these biologists do assessments of wildlife populations and they determine, is there a harvestable surplus? And if there is a harvestable surplus of an animal species, they set rules and regulations and dates about how people can go access that harvest of surplus. How does that make you feel? Oh, I feel it makes you feel a little better. So it winds up being that oftentimes in, 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 in encountering people who ambivalent, antagonistic, uneasy with all these different words we've been using. It's the, the most productive thing is just to talk about an objective reality over emotional claims. Like me saying, me saying to people like, oh, you know, but I feel so connected to my ancestral past when I hunt. Most people are like, I don't give a shit <laughs> that you feel that way. It's like, that's not moving me. What's moving me is just like, how is this done? Like, how do we orchestrate this, this hunting thing? explain me like how is it not damaging to wildlife and then that is productive to people i had a conversation uh, on a flight back last night and and we got to talking about game we're flying back from colorado and she was saying about all the things she doesn't like to eat that taste quote-unquote gamey this is just the person next to you yeah a stranger no friend okay and i was a little bit shocked because i didn't know they knew nothing about food but they were saying how they don't like lamb. I was like, <laughs> they don't like goat. Because it's all gamey. It's all, and I was like, that's not gamey flavor. And, like, and, and they said, but the worst of all of it is venison. And I'm like, have you ever had wild venison? She mm. said, no. I was like, if you had wild venison, then you would definitely know what the, uh, as gamey as other things. And I think that disconnect actually on some fundamental level bothers me. Because people are so disconnected from anything. Right? Yeah. Well, even when it doesn't even have to be wild game. If they buy an heirloom chicken, they're like, wow, this is so tough. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be. I, I've thought long and hard, maybe more than anybody uh, around. So I had the luxury to think about it a lot and experiment with it. When people say gamey, what they mean. Here's what, here's what gamey means. 
like the best they can do, the best explanation that's out there is when it's gamey, what they mean is it does not taste like it does not taste like grocery store beef or chicken. Because if I, okay, if I'm eating something, I could say that's, you might think that's gamey, but what you're tasting is you're tasting a catfish that didn't have the fat cleaned away. So by you saying it's muddy or it's like a gamey fish or a fishy fish, it's like, that's catfish fat. That taste, that's deer meat that kind of like got a little bit rotten. Um, that taste, that gamey is something that wasn't properly wrapped and has been sitting in the freezer too long. That's what you're tasting there. That gamey is, that's a, a buck that was probably in its rut and it has a, like a, like a heightened level of hormone in it. And then the person that cleaned it obviously got a bunch of the oil from its tarsal gland all over everything. And that gamey is that, but it's become this catch all for, for, not norm, not in accordance to my normal grocery store experience is the best I can think of what the hell that word means. Wild duck. I've argued against that word my entire life, dude. Oh, I, I don't want to, I don't envy you. That would you drive know, me crazy. One of the things that I've heard it called is, uh, if you look at old classic French cookbooks, they would talk about, they would, they would try to get it. And like, like you look at, I wrote a book about a Scofier years ago and you, you look at, uh, in, in the Scofier's, book will say like hang a pheasant until it becomes this is translated obviously but hang a pheasant until it becomes high meaning until it starts to rot a little bit and that was or, or like they would want red deer during the rut because they would be a high like saying like here's how to maximize gaminess <laughs> well not what, what they, they were say. chasing when, when i did stages in europe they're like you hang it till the head falls off right? yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> And in America, we'd be like, that's gamey. In my first real game bird flavor in Europe, I was like, what is this? This is a, it didn't taste bad, but it tasted like some forbidden fruit. Mm -hmm. It almost like burned my nostrils, you know? Yeah. And I was like, this is so different. I want to learn more, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's why, I mean, like, people don't want to eat wild duck. I think it's delicious. Oh, listen, there, there. Well, that's a broad category. Yeah, there's some duck that's uh, there's some ducks that are hard to deal with, and there's some ducks that I mean, you a teal or a mouse, something no, that's not eating with fish, with a bunch right? of body fat yeah. on it. Delicious. There is so good. Know, I, I, yeah, like, like again, I was warning against subjective shit, but th- like subjectively, that is one of the finest things that you can eat. Would be a very fat wild duck delicious oh so good yeah. but and if, having- if you don't like that i mean if you don't like that i'll be like flat out like whatever you know opinions aside like you don't know what you're talking about. and i've been <laughs> present many times where like uh just doesn't taste like duck that sentence has been uttered many times and i'm like wow this yep. is great this is crazy it's like no you're wrong because that is duck. That is duck. <laughs> that's a duck so, I mean, that I feel like, again, this, this idea of being a little bit more open about enjoying to hunt, for me, I, I want it to be much more about the food and a little bit about the adrenaline of it all and controlling that process. But mm-hmm. I think that the best way I, in my world that uh, get people to accept it is by knowing what is delicious on a plate and getting yeah. them part of that process. But it's a very difficult road. 
I found that, you know, that is impactful. Um, I have a lot of, I decorate my home with a lot of, you know, skulls and hides and things. It's kind of like the, if you, if you went into my living room, it's kind of the main thing going on is animal skulls and they all mean things to me and they all have stories. No one ever comes in my house and looks at my animal skulls and says, Hey, I'd sure like to go hunting, but I've had a lot of people come over for dinner that walk away and they're like, dude, I want to get me one of those, man. That shit is good. You know? So that is on a, on an individual, you know, earlier I was talking about that, that sociology work, which is very impersonal on an individual and personal basis. The food thing is the food thing is profound. The, the food influence is profound for people, but it ha- like I said, it has to come, it has to be personal. It has to be couched in personality. It has to be couched in like being in a home. You know, when we sit down, I, I have three young kids and, and we are, are very, we're very strict about family dinner time. And when we sit down at dinner, we eat stuff that we hunted and caught fishing or trapped, whatever. And, and that's just our dinner always. Uh, well, we've been working through four chickens that my, my, my kid's buddy raised up himself. My kid helped him slaughter. But anyway, our, our meal time is always about, it's always to the level of this thing, like, like not this idea of American beef, but it's like this deer, this deer, which lived in that place, right? Or this fish, this is the fish that Rosie reeled in and it was caught here and they, and they were there for all that they saw it get clean. They saw it get pulled from the freezer and you could, it, it tastes good. How, whatever taste means it tastes good, but it's like, it's emotional and intellectual and sort of spiritual package is huge where it transcends like what it actually tastes like. Do you know what I mean? So like you said like stuff that you understand tastes better. It tastes better, but it's also, it feels better. Yes. That's it. That's you know, exactly it. it feels better. I think some of this, again, starts with me. In my office, we haven't hung everything up yet. The bait, I actually, my friend sent me the first buck I shot, and the skull's there. Oh, yeah. I'm really proud of it. Yeah. I'm so proud of it. But I'm wondering, if I hang that up, people are like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But that moment for me, I was like, wow. I felt a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. That was awesome. And I can think about every second of how that happened. Yeah. More clearly than so many other, maybe right up there with my son's birth, right? It's like so vivid. I can think step by step of how it all went down. Yeah. For me, it's a a moment I'll never forget. I'm proud of that. Very difficult to communicate to anybody else. There's this. But you know, I don't have to explain Oh, no, I know exactly what you mean. There's this, there's the Arctic Explorer. His his name's like spelled crazy, but Viljalmer Stephenson. And he had made first contact with Inuit hunters in the high, high Canadian Arctic. And he would describe how they would, if they killed a polar bear, they would bring the polar bear's head into their home, into their lodge and position it being that they wanted it to see. They wanted it to see that they were a good person so that if it ever had to report back <laughs> to others, he would be like, you know, if you're going to get killed by somebody, that's not a bad guy to do it. Wow. <laughs> you know, and 
I can't claim any sort of connection like that, but I the 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 skulls and stuff that I have around I I just do not look at it. I do not look at them as sort of like it's not to me a way you might see it. People might think that you see that you've conquered it or it's like that you're expressing a dominion over it. It definitely is something that I in many cases something that I killed and that we ate. But it's like a, it's a hallowed position, right? It's a, it's a hallowed, very respectful position. We had a forest fire near us a couple of years ago and I had, I had to leave town. It was still burning. And I told my kid, the only thing I was like, if something were to happen, take all those skulls and throw them out in your little pool thing. Wow. And that was the only thing that I gave him any instructions on how to deal with. Cause it's like, it's like, it really matters to me. You know what I mean? It's like, that shit's like, it's like, uh, it has a great spiritual significance to me. (laughs) When's the last time you bought grocery market meat? Man, in, you know, in restaurants and stuff, like we ate in a, we ate in a place today and they had like boiled, boiled beef bones and stuff. You know, I just ordered that for lunch today, but it's a little bit of a family joke where I'm real strict about not bringing, I'm real strict about, because we have stuff in our freezer. I actually brought you a gift of some things, but Beautiful. we have a lot of stuff in our freezer. And if I'm out of town, I'll know that they'll like sneak <laughs> store-bought meat, which, which kills me. But it's like a little bit of a joke where my kids will tease me if I'm out of town that like, mom got us chicken. I bet your doctor <laughs> says your health must be amazing. I don't know. I hope so. Uh, I feel good. That's the kind of, I, I like to eat really simple stuff. And, and um, I like to eat stuff. The way I describe it is I like to eat things that, generally speaking, when I cook food for my family, I like to eat things where you'd look and it when the table's laid out and we eat family style, the table's laid out and anyone, most you know, most people would be able to walk in and be like, well, let me see. That looks like it grew out of the dirt. That looks like it grew out of the dirt. And that looks like you cut it out of an animal. And like, that's kind of like how I like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, I just, it's just, it's just clean and, and, and recognizable and simple. And, and, uh, everybody feels that that's the food. My, you know, it's something like my, my wife doesn't hunt, but that's what she likes to eat. She's come to be that she finds like a lot of domestic meat, just too fatty for her. So you get, you get trained into, into thinking that way. Um, so I don't like to do it. I don't like to bring, you know, there's another joke, like you brought another man's meat into our home. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't like any of that stuff coming in because we just have stuff and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to buy, but you can only exert so much influence over your family when you're out of town. <laughs> so those, so those, uh, you know, they'll, they'll cheat on me now and then. I mean, this has nothing to do with hunting per se, but I do know fishermen that catch it and they perform ikijime. And Oh Yeah. Right. Yep. And we, I do think we were one of the first people to sort of like talk about it, introduce it on on Mind of a Chef, and it's something I did when I worked in Kyoto. I think I actually I had it demonstrated to me, but I could do a direct line. Who demonstrated it to me? Got it from you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, because like nobody knew. Yeah. It was legitimately it was we asked everybody of, a direct line of like mental transfusion from you <laughs> to me on EKG. <laughs> everybody was like, "What the hell is that?" We uh-huh. couldn't find anybody. Yeah. Even understanding the science, and sure enough, we did. You brain spike it, and you, depending on the size of fish, you shoot a rod down the spinal cord, and you know, amazing things happen. You control the rigor mortis, glutamic acid. 
The funny thing is, it is all the rage right now. Dry aging fish. Yeah. Right? That for sure. Which is crazy that it's taken this much time, but now people are, I do believe in the next 10, 15 years, you're going to see when you go to a normal supermarket next to the dry aged beef, you're also going to have dry aged fish. It's crazy, but that, I, I think that's going to happen. I think that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Ikijime now is top chefs all are serving Ikijime. It's a proud thing that yep. they have on their menu. I have a friend that he's a commercial spear fisherman. And he has, so he sells a specific clients. He, so he, he's a professional spearfisher who sells like very like boutique grade shit to specific clients. And now they tell him that that's how they want it done, man. Right. You know, a lot of the commercial fishermen that do, you know, line cod fish, they're being told they got, they're learning how to do Ikijima on the boat. We still have many. Many years to go until we reach the proficiency of what they have in Japan, because that's on a whole nother level, right? Where they're doing, they're keeping, catching fish, keeping them alive and doing it on premise. Mm-hmm. And they're knowing that they're, they're trying to control the texture of the fish to the diner and the time that that person is eating. Yeah. It's crazy. Got it. It's like wholly different level. But if you see it, it's extremely brutal to look at. Mm-hmm. But as brutal as it is, I don't want to say brutal. Really, it's the most ethical way in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't. Right? I don't it looks I, bad. It's really ethical. It, it looks crazy, but I, I think that if you're in the, you're definitely not adding any suffering. Like the general practice, and, and this, I'm telling you this from a place of having done it. I mean, like growing up, man, you generally throw them on the floor of the boat. That's it. And then they flop around there. And if someone does or doesn't wipe it on the head, but it was just, you know, so any sort of, you know, if, any argument it's it's very uh visceral right it's, it's it's like wow but it's in terms of ways that fish get dispatched it's probably the quickest it is the quickest yeah. and that's why even though it's a, like a not even the same data set or world but i can see this happening right and i think that maybe you have now customers that are knowledge about it and they want they see ikijima on the menu oh they're going to order it oh really yeah, yeah. So it's a lot of it's the marketing yeah. of it all. Yeah. And I think that can happen with hunting, especially if you tie it to food. And all of a sudden, people like you and your legacy and all the people that you're educating, that starts to happen. A good example is uh, someone I know you are well aware of, Josh Keens, mm-hmm. who is like very much into you know preparing wild game in a yep. delicious way. Like people eating the bear he cooks for the first time. Now people are like, wait, how do I get this? Well, you can't get it on a restaurant menu, yeah, things like no. that. It just needs the right amount of kindling to get started. And yeah. I think it can happen. You know, I wanted to point something out to you about EKG May is uh, I said that the, I was talking about the person that introduced me to it. There's an except, there's, there's an exception to this. That you might find interesting when we used to catch snap turtles when I was a kid, we'd eat turtles and I even for a while sold turtles. And the way you, if you live trap a turtle, you generally like just like a chicken. You like traditionally how you do chickens, you chop its head off, and it will it, it'll clench up, and you then hang it. And you got to hang it for hours and hours and hours until it relaxes. I was in South America with these Makushi guys, and they caught a giant river turtle, and did just that. Took a machete and flop, 
cut its head off. But this dude then makes a, he gets this long slender limb oh, man. and takes the bark off that long slender limb and puts a sharp edge on it and down the spinal column on that thing. And that turtle melted. Wow. Just completely relaxed. And it was later when someone showed me that shit, like cutting on the tail and doing the wire. I was like, oh my God, that's what those Same dudes thing. are doing. <laughs> so they had, they were onto it, but they were onto it out of an expediency thing. Because if not, you can't clean it. It's, it retracts into the shell and does that, you know, clenched up. And they would do that and just like that, that turtle melted. And that was good. That was a good turtle too. But it was, so it was, it was funny to see that there's like, uh, you know, People like to count like how many places the bow and arrow might have been invented, you know, independent people independently, or how many times was the blowgun independently invented? And you realize that like EKG may in some capacity was probably independently right. discovered around the world, right? Like this this idea. <laughs> I have most things for sure. I mean, thinking about turtle, I I love turtle soup. Uh, supon is what it's called in Japan. Soft soft shell turtle. Uh huh. I don't even know how or why, because I think something got lost in translation. Because when I was working at this uh, two mission star restaurant, that's what they thought that I wanted to learn how to do. So for like a week, that's all I cleaned. With oh, really? Else. And I you was like, me. I've never cooked it since. But I was just like, how the hell did this happen? Like, oh, because they said you wanted to learn. It's like, no, I, I, and I just want to be a respectful <laughs> guest. I'm like, great. It was a, it's a lot. To, oh, it's a, it's a chore, dude. Yeah. Especially, you know, I felt it was very foul because like the table's right there. You jam the head with a stick, they poke it out, then you're cutting it sort of waist high on the table yeah. and then take the take the shell off. I don't know if turtle will ever become a thing mainstream America, but if it does. I, I don't think that it will, man. <laughs> I don't think that it will. Uh, it's a whole, it's an alien once you take that goddamn shell yeah, off. Yeah, they're, they're hard to wrestle with. But these boys, they have this, this giant river turtle, which is a, they, it's huge. And they cooked it. They inverted. So when they got done cleaning it, they flipped its shell on the fire and cooked that turtle. Wow. All in that big shell bowl. It was one of the most memorable things I've eaten. And, we, and, and when I was a kid, you'd get them quite good in Michigan. It's funny because we're talking about how, how delicate wildlife management is. You used to be able to, turtle season would open June 15th. And you would often get a lot of turtles right when the season opened because they'd be out trying to go nest. And then they eventually bumped the opening date of turtles to July 15 to get it after nesting and basically like shut it down. Wow. Yeah. So that little like 30 day movement in the season, it's just like you get to July 15th. Generally, you just turtles aren't running around everywhere. But like June 15th, there's turtles. You, you know, A lot of places you can't drive down the road without there being a turtle on the side of the road. And that's the ones we would eat when I was a kid. You just it'd be turtle season. You just see them and throw them in the trunk, and and you know my dad would clean them and and uh, like everything, he would fry it. Oh, fried turtle, <laughs> deep fried <Wow>. turtle. <laughs> I was sat down and counted up. I think I counted up like just I was counting up the things that my dad deep fried when I was a kid. And I was just going off. I can't remember. I think I hit like twenty three species of things. I saw my dad deep fry wow. as a kid. <laughs> All in the same deep fryer. Well. If turtle becomes a thing, if it's on the cover of like Bon Appetit magazine, it won't be. It means that we have exhausted every single possible food idea in America. 
I think, yeah, turtles, I, turtles are not at risk of becoming a mainstream <laughs> dining experience. Um, and what's funny too, is I don't even think like as much stuff as I've had my kids eat and clean, I haven't had them do a turtle and I don't know, I, I think we would have come up. That'd be an interesting thing to try to get their feel on because they have a pet turtle. <laughs> oh man, that's rough. But I'll never forget popping open that shell and just seeing all kinds of organs and things that you're yeah. like, wow, that's what's inside of your turtle. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it was, it was a real thing, man. And then another thing I had in South America was the, they'll dig the eggs. And when you, when you cook a turtle egg, the white doesn't solidify. Wow. But the yolk does. <laughs> so when you take a cooked turtle egg, it's soft. And you, you're holding a cooked turtle egg in your hand and you can tear, you can pinch, just like, you know, those little half and half things at the gas station. Yep. The same way you pull that little half and half lid off, you hold the turtle egg and you can pinch and lift and you make a perforation. And then you, they drink out the white. And then you get to the yolk and the yolk is like a chicken yolk times 10, like yolk, whatever yolkiness is, it's times 10. Hmm. Overpoweringly yolky. (laughs) I'm going to have to try one of those one day. (laughs) If you, yeah, if you get, if you ever get the chance, one of the craziest things I saw was, uh, they kind of like really summed up sort of, you know, the jungle in South America and the culture collisions that go on there was, a woman with a uh, DKNY, you know, the fashion Donna company. Karen, yeah. A woman with a DKNY t-shirt up to her armpit in a turtle nest pulling eggs out. And I remember thinking that I was seeing the strangest mashup of cultural, <laughs> like the strangest mashup of cultures you'd ever see. Well, I sure didn't think we were going to talk about <laughs> turtles to the degree today at all. You know, there's so many things we could talk about, but for for the practicality, right? I want this to be useful for listeners too. We sort of talked about it last time you were here too. But if somebody wanted to become sort of more familiar with outdoors, wanted to learn, hey, I would like to go duck hunting, or mm-hmm. I would like to, how how do I um, taste, you know, venison that I've shot? Yeah, I think this is information that is not for a lot of people that you see on the coast. It's not easy to come by or somebody no. that they can trust. So how do, how do we, how do you fix that? How, how does one become a hunter, a novice hunter? Yeah, I would encourage, there's a lot of ways you approach this question, but one of the things I would encourage if someone was interested in experimenting with it, as people get, as people hunt a long time or they spend their whole life hunting, they get interested in things that are rare-ish, like, you know, you want to shoot like a big buck, right? Um, cause that's, that's sort of like a, like a, a, a pinnacle of achievement would be to shoot a big giant white tail buck or, um, things that have like a certain cool factor. I like to hunt turkeys a lot. People like to hunt turkeys cause they, you know, they gobble, they're very elusive, they're very hard to figure out. It's a difficult thing to, to learn how to like in a variety of circumstances to successfully take turkeys is tough. So you want to gravitating toward these, these things that are, are challenging. I would always encourage people to start out with things that are, that are underutilized. There's a lot of wild game resources out there that are, that are just flat out underutilized. Things that used to be quite popular to hunt for, uh, small game, squirrels, 
So gray squirrels, fox squirrels, they're all over the place. Rabbits. Like the the the, the small game hunting days in, in many places are, are all but over. And so you have these underutilized resources of things that have very long seasons. In a lot of states, even all, all the eastern in the east, the eastern half of the country, they all have squirrel seasons, they all have rabbit seasons. But for a lot of these things, it's normally rabbit season. It'll be rabbit season six, seven months out of the year. You're allowed five a day, six a day with squirrels. It's usually squirrel season. Starts in September, it'll run to February, March in places. You're allowed five a day, six a day for fishing that that channel catfish, right? This this fairly ubiquitous fish species that is that is just flat out it's underutilized. It's an underutilized resource. It's not being targeted. It's not even anywhere near um full potential of exploitation by people. So forget about what forget about what you might, you know, if you go get like a hunting magazine or you go to a hunting website or whatever, forget about what they might think is really cool. Like I'm all happy with myself right now because I just got a really big moose. I got I've always wanted to get like a giant moose and I got a big moose. So I'm all, how, long, I'm, I'm cloud how many pounds of meat? A lot, hundreds. <laughs> I'm real happy. However, uh, do that later. If you're going to start like, like start with the stuff that people aren't doing. And, and, and also it comes like, you know, if you don't, you can hunt on public land. There's a lot of squirrels that live on public land across this country that no one ever is targeting. Or on, on private land, there's a lot of people who said like, hey, can I hunt deer? They're going to be like, oh, my nephew hunts deer every year. So no. Can I hunt squirrels? You really want to hunt squirrels? Go ahead. Because it's just these aren't like coveted, heavily exploited things. That's what I always tell you. If you want to get interested in it, start out with the things that aren't, that it's not so competitive. That it's, that it's not so competitive and restrictive and go after these things that are being undone. Well, I was just visiting my mom in Michigan. My kids wanted to go out for bullfrogs at night. In the South, people do bullfrogs. In the North, crayfish, frogs squirrels, cottontails, catfish, bluegills. It's like, I don't want to say most, they're just not getting touched. And it's, it's, it's like right now is the good old days, man. You know, if you were starting out, it's the good old days right now. And it's all like stuff that's great to eat. It's a lot of fun to eat. I brought you cottontail rabbit. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I gotta be honest. I've never, never tasted squirrel. Oh, I should have brought you some of that. Oh man. I wonder what, uh, I wonder if I, how would I would serve that to a group of people that would have no idea that I'd serve them squirrel. You'd be pretty, yeah. Well, you'd have to get it off the bone because if it's on the bone, they're going to, they might not know what it is, but they're going to know they haven't had it before. (laughs) What about if they do graduate? Do you think we live in a world right now for people that are getting into hunting that they are familiar with sort of the, the pain of not having anything happen, right? Like you're, you are just waiting around Mm. a lot. Or like, for example, I just came back from a, a trip in, to Mexico because I, I love to fish for permit. And oh, yeah. I took one person that was a trout fisherman, really wanted to do it. I said, listen, like, you can come in your, maybe three, four, five times, maybe more than that, and never catch a, you may catch a small permit, but not like a nice size permit. That may never happen. Yeah. They didn't catch anything. I don't think they're ever going to come back. Well, but to me, out. it was the pain. Yeah, yeah. The masochism of it all, we're like, I have to come back. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people are built that way. I think a lot of that comes later. When I was a kid, and if I look at my own kids, 
we have a we have a squirrel species that lives in Montana called a pine squirrel, and it's not even it's not even regarded as it's it's regarded as a non game species. It means it's totally unregulated, which means they're everywhere, and there's no demand on the resource, so they don't even manage it as a game. You can hunt them year round. They love to hunt pine squirrels because they know they're going to go and they're going to get a bunch, and then we're going to cook them up, and they're going to have fun. They're going to get all that action. It's really cute, and I love it that they do it because they, they learn a lot about marksmanship and stalking and all that. But they're going to get to a point where they're going to want to move on to a thing that's a little bit harder. I think that's a natural, like, that's a natural, tr- that, that, that's a natural progression is to want to get toward the harder things. But I think that, like, let that, let that play out. I just never understand when people start hunting and they start and they're already drawn, like, they already want to play in the big leagues. And it's a little bit like, dude, why not enjoy like the, the learning on these things where you get to have like a lot of action and a lot of engagement and then down the road, like, you know, move into the harder stuff. And I know some people are drawn to it, but that's not how I was brought up and that's not how I'm bringing up. That's not how I'm bringing up my kids. You know, I'm introducing them to the, the, the really readily accessible stuff that that has a pretty good payoff and i know that they'll move and they'll want to start getting into these these things where it's where you can do a lot of effort like you know a real solid 10-day push on something probably isn't going to work out but they're just not there yet you know as kids again i i will never be understand all the experience you you've had but sometimes when i watch you i always appreciate the patience but sometimes when you, you, you know, I always try to imagine what it's like for you because you have taken the life of so many animals, right? Respectfully mm, so. Yeah. Do you ever get to a point where you're like, you're desensitized to it to some degree? Because I talked to some of my friends that are like literally pro anglers and they're still bewildered about catching like a permit fish, for example, or some other exotic species that's very smart and difficult to catch and for me i always wonder i do think about you in the sense of like i know you said you don't go bow hunting too much you want to shoot something with a rifle but that idea that if you oh, no, I, I, bow, I like the bow i bow hunt during bow season <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. but that moment where that i always find that similar to certain things that i like in 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 fishing because like because i like it's basically hunting for fish right I've always found it to be the closest thing to maybe Zen Buddhism that I've ever come across in my life. Fishing. If I'm thinking about anything else, right? Anything else, I'm going to fuck it up. Mm. Yeah, I got it. And I have to be in complete control of myself, my body, my breathing, everything. But if I think about any of that stuff, I'm going to fuck it up. Yep. So part of that is, and knowing that in the moments that I do everything right, I could still miss the fish. Mm-hmm. And it's such a humbling moment that I'm addicted to that moment. Yeah. I want that moment all the time. Do you still get that feeling? Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to ask something different about desensitization to, like, desensitization to death. And I would say that, that yeah. Well, I thought you were going to ask that. Like, do you become desensitized to seeing a thing die? And I would say that that does happen. That has happened. That happened to me a long, long time ago. In, in terms of that, no, I, I gravitate toward those activities that, uh, when it comes to hunting and fishing pursuits, I definitely 
to me, the pinnacle, the, the, the epitome of those experiences is those times when you get into these disciplines that there's not room for other things. I used to joke that, that, um, I felt like hunting doll sheep and riding a bike in Manhattan were the, the two experiences I'd had that I felt required the highest level of <laughs> the, the highest level of spatial awareness and, and, you know, and, and modest, like, like every step matters, every movement matters, you know, and, and they're challenging in their own ways. So I, I do like that and know that sense of thrill and that desire to be out there doesn't go away. There's, this is going to sound weird, man, but there's people, there's people that are just like, and I know a great many of them. There's people that just have to hunt and fish. Right. And I don't know what would have happened to them if they had been brought up in a different way. There's just people that just have to do it. They have to do it or else they would cease to exist or something about them would fundamentally change if they didn't do it. There's no way you could not. If they made it illegal, I would, you know, if they made it illegal, I would just have to become a vigilante. It's like, I, I can't, there's no, to me, there's no existence without it. Right. And I, I can't, I couldn't walk away from it. It, it couldn't lose the thing because the thing is like, it's like, I always wish it was happening. And you take, remove the, the animals that you hunt to provide sustenance. Right. But talk about this large moose you shot. Mm-hmm. You must have been amped. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, do you get addicted to be like, man, what else can I, what else can I get? Because that unfortunately is me. I'm always looking for that thrill that is going to top something. No. Cause for me, it's well, I think that you get a lot of like, I don't have these feelings of that. I would really like to go somewhere and, and, you know, hunt something I never hunted before. At this point in my life, I know what I like. And I mostly, there's some ex- instances where there's something I would love to go do. And, and you this talked po- about on your shows. You're like, oh, I've never shot this before. No, I don't, I don't have a lot of that. Yeah. To me, it's like, I've been around. I've done a lot. I know now what I like to do. I like to hunt with my kids. I like to hunt wild turkeys. I like to hunt mule deer. I love hunting for moose. So it's, it's like, it's not, I don't look at life like growing, you know, older and having more free time perhaps and being able to go exercise all these new experiences. I want to do more of the things that I know really speak to me. And, and I don't even need anymore. I don't need much to the chagrin of my wife. I don't need any more to, to touch the new. It's like I've found things that just that are so wholly satisfying to me that I want to just be able to focus on those things that I know really well and love. Amazing. And maybe that's some that 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 brings some level of mental peace. I don't know. <laughs> well, you explain why you like shooting uh, wild turkeys. Why mule deer over other deer? You know, yeah, that's a really good question. I like the places they live. You know, they live, they, they tend to live in, in somewhat more, you know, somewhat harsh environments. They're quite shy. You can see mule deer, you know, you might see mule deer that haven't been seen before, you know. I, I like sort of how they, they, how they interact with their environment, the way they vanish in plain sight in front of you. 
they live in oftentimes you find them in like quite open country and mountainous terrain. So I like all that. Also, there's a newness to it. I grew up hunting whitetail deer. I'll probably end up dying hunting whitetail deer. That was the only big game animal we had when I was a kid. So after a lot of years of doing that growing up and then to go and have this new thing, it's sort of, you know, seeing this new animal out there, um, you become aware of its differences in a way that speaks to you. So there's some of that was a little bit of a reaction to that. And, you know, I'll be hunting whitetail deer in a couple of weeks. I love hunting whitetails, but yeah, just uh, mule deer are, they're just, they, they strike me as very mysterious, sensitive and, and, and just, just like a very discreet presence on the landscape, you know, and oftentimes you see them and if you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't find them. You know, they, they, they live, they live off, in many places, they live quite tucked away and like hard to locate, especially the older ones. So there's a mysterious element to it. And then, you know, I, I love hunting in, in the West and the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains. And, and that's where they're found. Moose, same, similar situation. That's a Northern, uh, no, it's a Northern critter. And moose, a thing that's really cool about moose is they, they generally live at these really low population densities in vast, vast, huge areas. You know, you could sit down in places, you might sit down, and I sat on an agricultural field growing up and watched, you know, over 100 whitetails walk out and do a picked cornfield that night, right? You got to do a hell of a lot of moose hunting to see a hunter moose, right? There's people that are going to hunt moose their whole lifetime. They're not going to see a hunter moose. So it's like uh, there's a, there's a, you got to scour a lot of ground. The way we hunt them now is to call them by mimicking the sound of a female in estrus, a female who wants to be bred. And it's, uh, and the way they come into that, um, is I'll wait 10 days to see that happen anytime. Seems like one of those <laughs> ultimate challenges. Yeah. It's a per, yeah. Like a big, mo- a big moose is the big permit of the mammal <laughs> world. I mean, and I'll point out to you, I never caught a permit. Oh, um, I've touched, I touched a couple, <laughs> I've touched a couple, but never caught one. Fucking pain in the ass fish. Yeah. I mean, one of my, one of my friends, he runs a, a company in Colorado and his vacation solo when he's not with his family is when it's moose season. He just, it's like just him and he's gone satellite phone. And oh, is that right? that's it. Like it's just completely solo. It's, he comes back a better person. And, yeah. And that's his thing. Like, that's what he lives for is, is hunting for moose. I want to tell you a quick permit story is, uh, you know, you get, sometimes you get the feeling you, you never get like the shot you want yeah. on a permit. One time I was bait fishing with my brother, Danny. I was bait fishing for snappers and whatever else. And I happened to hook a big ray. And as I'm reeling the ray in, there's a permit, you know, the trail after rays. Yep. There's actually two permit that following the ray that I got on. So I could reel it up and then open the bale and let it run back out and reel it up and open the bale. And these permit just followed it everywhere. And, and, um, he got, so here's these permit they're, they're feeding behind this ray and he's just getting perfect shot after perfect shot after perfect shot after uh-huh. perfect shot. Still known. You're like, so it's not even that dude. <laughs> it's like, it's. It's like here they they want to eat. They're right here. We just made ten casts that were perfect, and still they're like, nope, 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 nope. 
man, I wish I could describe <laughs> what's happening. So rays dig up, they're eating shellfish and crabs and permit love that because they're digging up a lot of the stuff that the permit, same thing. Yeah, so they just follow yes. them around looking for free meals. Yeah, permit, you know? I mean, when you see rays in the water, it's a good thing. When you see dolphins, I know there are a lot of dolphin fans out there. They're the fucking worst thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hate dolphins when I'm fishing. It sucks. But, uh, party's over. Yeah, party is over. But man, like, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but we got we to gotta record a podcast for you right now yeah, as well. So, sure. Uh, the cool. Meat Eater Podcast. Absolutely. Meat Eater Podcast. So this is going to be on uh, this show, clearly, and then uh, we're going to record we'll right now, water. picking up this podcast on the Meat Eater Podcast. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. You can follow Stephen Ranella on Instagram at Stephen Ranella, R-I-N-E-L-L-A, and at Meat Eater, one word. Season 11 of The Meat Eater is coming soon. Again, Steve said that's going to be on fast streaming. And finally, you can catch me on the upcoming episode of Meat Eater podcast, available on themeateater.com and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>